0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. This is episode number 142, A Conversation with Michael Bernstein from Code Climate. This episode is supported by WorkOnRails.com. If you have a job to promote, you can do so for free right now using the code Relaunch. Hey, Mike. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Why don't you introduce yourself for uh, everyone listening?
1: Sure, uh, my name is Mike Bernstein. I work for a small New York City-based startup called Code Climate. Uh, we provide hosted static analysis as a service for Ruby and JavaScript developers uh, with a focus uh, right now on Rails applications and JavaScript applications, like I said, but we'll be uh, expanding into some other languages uh, this year and beyond. Um, I first came across Ruby on Rails in the pre-1.0 days when I was uh, computer science educator um, in a middle school and high school and uh, after I left work there I became a full-time Rails developer and have been working with it in some professional capacity uh, ever since then for six or seven years.
0: Wow, so we'll talk tons about Code Climate but let's talk about being a uh, middle school uh, computer science educator. Uh, What brought you there and what was that like?
1: Uh, actually like most of the jobs that I've ever had in my life, I sort of fell into it. Uh, I had recently graduated from a master's program in what's called design and technology at the Parsons school of design in New York city and a classmate of mine there in the master's program who is actually from downtown Brooklyn where the school I ended up teaching at was based and he, uh, we, you know, the, the program was wrapping up. It was the end of the two years we were working on our theses and whatnot, and he happened to mention to me, uh, he knew I was interested in education. I had took, taken some courseware, coursework excuse me, in education and technology in grad school. And he mentioned that the school that his younger sister was going to was looking for someone to help them revamp their computer science education program for in the middle school first and then in the high school. Uh, so I went out there and interviewed with them and... Uh, It turned out to be a pretty good fit. I was really young. I was uh, 24, um, which was an interesting position to be in to be writing a curriculum and also teaching the classes. Um, But I had a really good experience there exposing um, a bunch of kids to creative coding and thinking through algorithms and attempting to apply some of my earlier thinking about computer science and its impact on education to you know, a real world scenario. So that was the middle school. And then in high school, I taught the similar stuff and then, you know, more standard things as well, like AP computer science in Java. So that
0: was a, that was a cool experience. Is it common for middle schools and high schools to offer computer science now? Mm.
1: Well, this was a private school. So, uh, that actually had a sort of baked in technology agenda, but yeah, I think in, in some capacity i mean it really depends you know a lot of schools it's still sort of like typing and like basic computer literacy like how to use word processing and how to like use a computer which is actually i mean it's a very complicated subject right it it, it depends on it depends on where you're talking about and obviously there are underserviced areas of the of the country that don't have the money to support appropriate computer science education but um, you do see it popping up more and more and becoming more common and it's also something that kids pursue a lot on their own these days which I I don't know if that has necessarily changed that much since I was a kid or not.
0: I hear people joke around sometimes that they think that you know programming of one sort or another should be uh, an option as your foreign language requirement. (laughs) I I don't know if they're kidding or not when they say that but uh, yeah, I, I mean, all the time.
1: right. I think they have some overlap. I don't. I don't think that they're. Uh, I don't think that they are. I don't think one one could ever truly be a replacement for the other. I, I'm. I'm. I hope that that's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, I like hope I, hope I, I hope. I hope as a I'm student. Sure. I hope as a student you would never have to choose between those two things. Is what I'm trying to say. I think they complement each other very well. Um, I often wish that I had a better education in foreign language when I was a student because. I feel like uh, I would have been able to pick it up a little bit better than I did, and that's because the education methods were kind of really uh, old school and arcade. But that's a
0: different subject for a different time. Right? Did (laughs) did you use Ruby or Rails in the class that you were teaching?
1: I in the classes that I taught, I didn't. Um, I did actually. I did a little bit of Ruby, a little bit of Ruby and Rails, like for with a student in an extracurricular capacity who wanted to work on some blogging stuff. Um, but the main platform that I used to teach was uh, something called Processing, which is a, an IDE and a library for Java that uh, basically, um, it's sort of like an API around common interesting things you would do with a computer, like draw, load and manipulate images, load and manipulate sound. And so if you're familiar with this creative coding movement around processing and another framework called Open Frameworks, you uh, then you might have heard of it, but it's, a, it's an interesting uh, it 's an interesting environment for teaching programming for sure i didn't i wasn 't as familiar with functional programming and whatnot as I am now, and so I might not have made the same choice today if I were going to to uh, teach a class, but for the time, I think it was a really good decision, and a lot of kids got really
0: into programming from it so I had <clears> a real- realization the other day about functional programming I, so i didn 't learn how to program until I was uh quite a bit older, but I was, I i think, an expert in, ex, in Excel for lots of years, and I suppose still am. And someone mentioned, uh, I, call you, I don't know, like a week or two ago, that Excel is the, the functional programming language that people know about best. And then I was like, wait a second, right, I'm, a, I'm a, like a good functional programmer, if that's the case.
1: <laughs> yeah, they also say it's like the most widely used programming language, right?
0: Yeah, I think I think uh I think a school could do worse than to teach um sort of very effective excel programming uh, as their CS curriculum for my, you know. Point
1: yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's like, you know, you want I think there needs to be a balance between what's practical and what's theoretical and certainly um you don't want computer science education to turn into like a trade school type education, but on the other hand, you don't want to teach kids a bunch of abstract concepts that, uh, that they don't feel equipped to apply. So yeah, that would be an interesting, an an interesting thing to, to, uh, consider for sure. I mean, there are programming languages like, like R is a pretty interesting programming language for statistical analysis that uses sort of the spreadsheet data, um, data type as sort of one of, uh, one of the primary data types that you manipulate when you use a language and you think about rows and columns and cells and stuff. So. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: It is really interesting. Yeah, I think interesting. R is a good one. I think the biggest I think the biggest uh, learning curve for R is just thinking in matrices. Um but but it, once you get past that and you sort of think about how you're manipulating these tables of data instead of one cell at a time, I think it's pretty magical.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm very interested in multi-paradigm programming in general and so I think it would be awesome if languages were better at moving from one paradigm to another and back, and um, specialized programming languages are cool because they tend to deal with the domain very well, but I'm sort of conflicted about them because I feel like too much energy placed into too much energy placed into a special purpose programming language. Um, might mean that less energy goes into better, more robust general-purpose programming languages. So, well, I don't know. That's probably, that's probably based on a, some sort of a fallacious assumption that I'm making. But
0: <laughs> the, uh, the thing about R that has uh, impacted me the most is it, it sort of shows how fast things can be that seem like they couldn't be too fast to me. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. unbelievably quick at doing the kind of things that it's good at yeah I yeah. mean and you
1: don't iterate right you just exactly. o- operate on these vectors or matrices i mean it, it's interesting like a friend of mine on Twitter raised the other day the question about you know so Python is sort of edging in on uh, certain things that people would traditionally do with R because it's it's becoming and is very fast at numerical computing um, whereas Ruby you know would be a would be a not the best choice for manipulating like large data arrays or matrices um and so anyway, my friend was asking the question, you know, are people using Python for scientific programming because it's better at it? Or is it a cultural thing with the community uh, in that uh, people are making libraries and nurturing that kind of thinking? And, you know, it, it's interesting. I love, thinking about, I love thinking about programming languages and the, the sort of border between the practical and theoretical uh, aspects of them. That, that's something that I like to sit around and think about. Because I'm, so, I'm a super exciting
0: person. <laughs> well, it's Friday night. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't wait. So what do you know about um, the difference between, say, R, Python, and Ruby as it relates to numerical computing? Like, Is there some fundamental thing that stops Ruby from being good at doing, call it math, on arrays and matrices? or, Or is it just sort of coincidental that it doesn't include the libraries that are fast at it?
1: That's a good question. I I don't I can't speak to why we don't have them in Ruby, but it is essentially that um, if you I think my um, what I can say about it uh, is that different virtual machines that support different dynamic programming languages are are better at, or worse at manipulating manipulating certain types of data structures. Like so so Java and the JVM is uh, is probably a good language to throw in that bag that you just mentioned like with r and python and ruby right because when mm-hmm. people think about java they think that like Java's supposed to be fast right like people use j ruby when mri gets too slow for them because it has multi-threading and all this stuff but there are certain characteristics of the way the jvm works and the way jvm bytecode works that makes doing numerical computation a little bit more challenging because of what's called boxing um, but essentially it has to do with how those values are sort of pulled across the border from you know being uh, raw raw bytes uh, and their numerical representations in in Ruby land or Python land or R land, right? So it's sort of both, I guess. Like you need the underlying you need the underlying architecture to support fast numerical computation, and you need people who care about it and will nurture that and write libraries that make it good at that, right?
0: Yeah, it seems like there's. Um, I think that R and Ruby and Python share some things in sort of in the, uh, not everything, but some things in sort of their approach to making programming a bit more friendly. And I wonder. I, I, I suspect that there could be great leaps with Ruby and, and numerical computing just because of the second issue you mentioned, which is you know if someone that was into Ruby and into numerical computing sort of took a, took a stab at at some extra libraries. I, I'd be interested in what would happen.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, th- I don't think it's out of the question. I don't think there's anything about Ruby necessarily that makes it impossible for that to happen. I mean, there are certain things that are challenging about it. Um, if you were to write that in Ruby and you were gonna like write it in C and then make a C extension, you, know, you, you would have to do a lot of memory management on the C side in order to make that as efficient as possible so that you didn't have to pool all of that memory, all of those objects into Ruby's heap. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think the right person who is motivated could probably make some really big strides in, in doing that. And that's sort of what I mean about, that's sort of what I was saying before about the general purpose versus uh, specific purpose programming language thing. It's like people who want to do stats, just use what it's fast and appropriate to use, to do stats in, um, which is, you know, they'll just pick up R or pick up Python or MATLAB or Mathematica or something. Like if you're, You're not going to, like, do your numerical computing and solve the numerical computation problem in Ruby, like, sitting down in one session, right? It has to sort of be a long, prolonged, uh, um, community-driven thing, I think, in order to be successful.
0: Right. But it would be cool.
1: I think Ruby would be good at that.
0: We got uh, we got onto this topic after talking about your uh, experience teaching young people how to program, and it's sort of a good segue because last episode was with uh, Dave Paola from Block.io, which is one of the uh, one of the companies that's focused on teaching people how to program. Their um, I think their angle is that they do it remotely, that it's part time, and with a mentor that's not in the same city as you, and you know with benefits that would come with that. So there 's been a lot of focus in the community about you know uh, these these boot camps and other other kind of post collegiate education programs for um, programming. Do you have any thoughts on those given your experience uh, teaching younger people than that are you Are you interested in that topic? surprised by how popular it 's become
1: I am uh... <laughs> I'm interested in the topic, like most topics, I definitely have a lot to say about it, um, I have a, and I have a decent amount of personal experience with it as well, not having actually gone through one myself, though I know people that have gone through them, but um, in previous roles that I've held, um, I've done a lot of recruiting. Uh, so I spent a couple years before I was working at Code Climate working at another startup based in New York, uh, and I did a lot of hiring and technical recruiting there. And um, when I started there, there were basically none of these programs. And and toward the end of my time there, we we would see a much larger spike in the number of individuals who were applying having gone through one of those things. Um, So um, it's a lot more prevalent now. Um, A lot of people who go through these programs are entering the job pool and are becoming professional programmers. So I think that obviously they're doing something right. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's very implementation based and it wouldn't be prudent to make some sort of sweeping generalization about how I feel about these programs like in Toto. But I, to heart, to step back a minute to what we were talking about before with respect to like the trade school versus theory thing, like I'm a sort of conflicted individual. I'm, I'm sort of a tortured soul in a lot of ways in the, in this game, like I love theory and I love practice, right? I know that theory isn't isn't applicable to everyone. Programming is something that learning how to program and getting a nice programming job and being happy programming and solving pro- problems with computers is like a way that someone could change their lives, right? So I, I don't want to sound judgmental when I'm saying like, oh, it's a trade school thing. Like that's actually awesome. You know what I mean? Like. If you get someone that knows how to communicate, that can understand another person's business domain, and can help them model that on a computer and do all this really abstract stuff, and and be good at it and learn that really quickly, you know that's really impressive, and I think that that's awesome, and it speaks very highly both of the individuals that are successful in that capacity and the programs that uh, produce them. Um, but you know, for-profit education, on the other hand, is. Can can be problematic, right? Because I think in the long run, um, in the long run, what happens is that that ends up impacting all of programming, right? Like people talk about the impact that uh, Java being the primary language taught in universities for so long has had on the resultant pool of pro- of programmers, right? And I, I have a lot to say about that. I've, I've written a decent amount about it too, like. A quick anecdote is that, you know, people that were in university and learned Java, you know, however many years ago, let's say seven or eight years ago, right, before when it was still considered, you know, pretty challenging to do um, safe, fast, multi-threaded programming in Java – Like people from those programs, this is anecdotally speaking and based on a research paper that I read from a computer science educator named Peter Van Roy. He was, he, he was, he anecdotally reported like you learn multi-threaded programming in Java and it's hard. Then the natural conclusion that your brain is going to draw is that multi-threaded programming is hard, right? Mm -hmm. And so that has a negative impact on the the mind share of developers that it produces right because and and this is sort of what i'm talking about in terms of the tension between theory and practice like i want people to be able to be practical programmers but i think the i think what we have to think more about is the impact that the tools that we use sorry the impact that the tools that we learn with have on how we end up thinking right and so like you you it sounds like you have a You have a more of an imperative programming background. I certainly have more more of an imperative programming background. And so it's it's hard for me to learn how to think functionally, right? Because I just wasn't exposed to those ideas early. There's sort of an indelible um, mark that learning in an imperative and essentially object-oriented approach has had on how I think about how to solve problems when using a computer. So it's interesting.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest concern that uh, that I have related to what you said is that about you know what what role the these boot camps could have, and then the sort of the professional education movement could have on programming in general is that you know the biggest takeaway that I had from the first couple years of programming is that it just takes an enormous amount of time to get good, and um, and the kind of key selling point of most of the programs is that it won't take an enormous amount of time to get good, and that that sort of worries me you know because if the if uh, you've got a lot of people joining the the ranks of programmers who got into it because they were uh intrigued by the idea that it would be quick and easy to go from whatever um career they had before to this new vocation that's kind of a they're kind of uh, they're in a bad place with respect to expectations and i wonder what what happens then you know like is that does that is what is the lesson that, you know, the, the reasonable things to learn that are easy or does, do they just figure out that that was a marketing pitch that maybe not, may not be totally true or what?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's really hard to be a good programmer. Um, it's really easy to be a bad programmer. Um, right. you know, and, uh, yeah, I, I share, I share that exact same concern. I, I think that, if the pitch of the school is that, you know, we'll help you, you know, we'll... I don't I haven't seen a, any of those programs say you will leave this program a, you know, a excellent programmer, right? I think what they say is that you'll leave with the skills to get a job and then you'll use that job to get better, you know? Um, yeah, I, th- so, I, think that's,
0: I think that's right. Although I think that the expectation with respect to... Uh, earning power after graduation yeah, yeah. i mean yeah it's not... it's very
1: complicated, it's definitely yeah. very complicated i don't I don't think that you know being a being a programmer should be reduced to like pay me ten thousand dollars and then you'll make a hundred thousand dollars a year like I don't think yeah. that that's a sustainable equation um but like anything else, I think it's you know it 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 sort of is a case by case. It's sort of a case by case thing and s- and some people that never had any other opportunities can end up in these programs on scholarships and so maybe the maybe the maybe the net win is uh or sorry, maybe the net uh impact is positive overall I'm not yeah. really sure it's hard to yeah, say
0: I think that's a smart way to think about it that you know few things are all good or all bad or yeah <laughs> um, all right so cool uh, let's uh I've got a feeling the two of us could talk about that for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, I'd like to talk about code climate, right? Um, and I'll give you a little, just a little intro here. You know, one, I think everyone loves code climate. You know, I, there have been a few tools over the past five years that have come out that hit open source in a in a particular way, and you know, obviously GitHub being the a number one of of a tool that impacted all of open source uh in a in a way that's almost hard to remember now how big of a way it was but code climate's kind of in that category to some degree when you think about before code climate there weren't those code climate badges everywhere and and you know people thinking about the a through d was a uh, um it was different i mean i think that static analysis existed for sure but it wasn't from a community perspective such a thing so uh so I'm excited to talk about it because I think um, it's you guys have made a pretty big impact in a pretty short time in the community and curious about you know the the journey to get here and then a bunch of stuff about what's next. Awesome. So why don't you start with that? Tell us the history. How did Code Climate come to be? And uh, uh, we'll go from there.
1: So Code Climate was started by Brian Helmkamp, um, who is a longtime Ruby developer and Rails developer and uh, He has been around the New York City tech scene um, in Ruby and uh, beyond for a while now. Um, And he started Code Climate a couple years back uh, as as an experiment uh, sort of as an experiment to see um, you know a, an experiment to see if he could build a sustainable business and also one to fulfill a need that he knew uh, existed, which was to provide a platform for visibility into code that teams can use to gauge the quality and security of their code over time. So he saw a need for that. Um, he is in the fortunate position of, you know, understanding how business works after studying it and also being able to build the tool himself. So that's what he did. He built the tool by himself. He launched it on his own. He eventually ended up leaving his job and bringing on um, Noah Davis as the co-founder of the company. And then the two of them worked on it together, alone together for about another six or eight months, and then hired me as the first employee about four months ago. Um, So... Uh Yeah, you know, it started as a tool just for Ruby and Rails applications. Um, at the end of last year, we expanded into JavaScript. Um, this currently, we're taking early signups for PHP, and we're also talking about launching Python this year. Um, So what we'd like to do is be the go-to service for code quality and hosted static analysis for all of the major web development languages. And, you know, we'd like to expand our vision and what we feel is our positive influence beyond the Ruby and JavaScript communities into the web development community as a whole. Um, Yeah, so that's, you know, that, that basically sums up, you know, day zero to now
0: so so tell them um, so i've i've used code climate, so i 've got to try to get myself into the mindset of someone that's never used it before sure um so give give us the let's say someone listening's never heard of code climate and they don't know what static analysis is or they're not sure what if you have a rails project and you sign up for code climate, how will your life be different
1: that's an awesome question thanks for that um so Basically, what ha- the way Code Climate works is that um, you, you tell us where your uh, version control uh, system is and where your specific repo is. Right? So let's say you're starting, you started it out better than I did. Let's say you're, you're starting with a Rails application. And you want to get some extra information about the code that uh, that Rails application contains. Um, then you might want to apply um, an approach called static analysis to that code. And what static analysis means, the word static and static analysis represents the fact that the code uh, is never executed uh, when it is being analyzed. So we are a true static analysis company, and now we do not we do not load any of your code in, into, you know, we do not execute any of your code ever to give you any judgments about it. All we do is simply analyze the code. Um, and that's an idea that's been around for almost as long as... Um, People have been writing programs. People have been writing programs to analyze their programs. Um, And the history of static analysis is also something that I could go on and on about. I mean, it's a really interesting history because it used to be that you would want to write a program to analyze your programs because the difference between, you know, an ON squared algorithm and an O log N algorithm uh, could be days in calculation time, right? And you, you... might want to apply static analysis techniques to tell you certain things about your code that wouldn't be obvious just by reading the programs. Um, What it gives you as a Rails developer in 2014 is continuous feedback about the changes that you're applying to your code with respect to the quality and security of your code base. So you log into codeclimate.com. You tell us where your GitHub repo is. You, um, you know, our application installs a key into your GitHub account with your permission, and then we check your code out. We pro- we perform what's called a snapshot on on your code, which takes the most recent uh, commit SHA and runs it through a series of analyses. And what we can tell you about your Rails application are things like. Um, where, are, where is the complexity inside your application? Which methods are the most complex? Which methods, uh, which classes are, are the biggest? Um, and another very helpful one that we tell you is duplication analysis. So are you duplicating code across your code base in ways that could be error-prone? Um, the security analysis is interesting because it sounds like it would be challenging to do static analysis for security in a Rails application because it's a dynamic programming language. But because, um, because Rails is such a convention-heavy language, um, it makes uh, providing static analysis of security of Rails applications a tractable, a tractable problem. And uh, we're actually able to tell you things like, um, you are vulnerable to a cross-site scripting attack in this line of code, or uh, SQL injection attack in this line of code, or you have insecure default set, or you are checking in a GitHub token, or you're doing all these kinds of things. So essentially, um, you know, Code Climate is a tool that provi- performs a bunch of code transformations to your code, and then over time tells you interest, really interesting things about them. So we, we pitch it as a tool for teams to give them visibility and insight into a code base, which is oftentimes a very challenging thing to get.
0: Yeah. So the, the, uh, is static analysis kind of like a for now uh, thing or for always? In other words, when, when you think about what code climate is, is it by definition about static analysis or is that just practical given the, the challenges of actually running the code? That's a
1: good, that's another really awesome question. Uh, we feel like it's in our mission basically to stay static. Um, jumping into the dynamic analysis is a challenge. So, but however, there's a caveat. So we are in addition to perf- performing that code analysis, you know, another service that Code Climate provides is that it becomes, um, it becomes a platform for gathering and looking into information about your code. So another service that we provide is that you can take your test coverage results that run locally or on your CI server and then post them to Code Climate through an API that we provide, and then we will display your test coverage of your files alongside the quality of your files. So like you, mentioned, um, like you mentioned, the way that Code Climate provides analysis is that it, on a per-class or per-file basis, depending on what language you're using, <clears throat> we provide a score for that file based on the amount of complexity and duplication that it contains. And we roll those scores up into a GPA or a grade point average between zero and four that represents the current rating of your project. So alongside the quality ratings for a specific file, you will also see your test coverage results. And so we don't run your test suite but we know that it's advantageous for people to view test coverage and quality and security information in line with each other. So we are also a repository for test coverage information data. So it's possible that we might expand into accepting other forms of data that are collected dynamically in that way. But essentially there are enough hard problems just in static analysis that we feel it behooves us to just get really good at static analysis before we ever think about doing anything
0: dynamic. Yeah, so I I used the uh for the first time I used the test coverage integration with code climate today. I uh I signed up for semaphore. Oh, cool. Um just cuz I we were going to have this conversation and and it'd been on my list to do. And it's a it's a heck of a great feature. Um because it's it, uh, you know, you could run the you could run test coverage um I could run it on my machine here, obviously. But if if you're using Code Climate to sort of evaluate your classes in terms of the, the the dimensions that you mentioned before, test coverage works really well in that context. And I think the integration with issue management is smart, right? Because then you can go from like where's the test coverage gap to let's create an issue to make sure we've we've uh, looked at at this class you know, or this class's method or whatever in a little bit more detail. So really cool. I awesome. Really Thanks. Solid.
1: That's great feedback. I mean, you know, the, the idea is that you need to know, you want to have confidence in the amount of test coverage that you have for a class before you make any kind of decision about touching that class, right? Um, right. So we're big believers in that. If you've ever read the Code Climate blog or you subscribe to our newsletter, you know that, you know, those are sort of core principles to us. It's very important. Um, It's very important for us that people are thinking about the, uh, people are thinking about the quality of their code, their code architecture, um, and providing the ability to record test report coverage alongside the quality data is, is something that, um, yeah, is very valuable.
0: So, so one thing that um, has sort of surprised me about Code Climate is that it, it's it fills a pretty narrow gap when you first hear about it, which is static analysis. And then you think, well, it doesn't do continuous integration. It's not a CI server, and it doesn't do issue management directly, and it doesn't handle test coverage. And and you know a lot of the tools that you guys use themselves aren't actually things that you wrote, but things that are open source that you're integrating in. Yet, yet it's it's um, it adds tons of value. Talk a little bit about that. Like what's 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 that that's been surprising to me to watch or and it's been not just surprising but I think um inspirational to see that you know if you do one thing really well that a lot of other opportunities will come of it and that what could seem like too narrow narrow of a spot you know can kind of blossom into perhaps the the center of collaboration is that how it feels from your side and 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 yeah you know, if so talk a little bit about that
1: yeah i mean I, uh, (laughs) I can tell you've thought a lot about this. It's cool. I mean, um, sometimes people ask us, sometimes people ask us that question in like the nice way that you just asked it to us. And then sometimes people ask it in sort of the, an accusatory way, like what are, what is the value that you're adding? Like, and it's of course our responsibility to make it very obvious, uh, what the value that we add is. Um, And just so for a little bit of background for any of the listeners that don't know, Codeclimate is based on um, a variety of previously existing, although all of them have essentially been heavily manipulated by us at this point, uh, previously existing open source tools like Flog and Flay for complexity analysis and duplication analysis and something called Breakman for doing the security analysis. So people um sometimes people don't understand why they would use code climate instead of like hosting all that stuff themselves. Um and so I, I I think, you know, I have a lot to say about that too. I think that the number one thing that people I think one of the number one things that people really like about code climate is the is the experience, right? First of all, it's very easy to use. It looks nice. Um the information architecture is such that you log into the application and you're sort of drawn immediately to what you need to be doing inside that application it it, we're not trying to take over your workflow but we want to provide you with enough information so that it's actionable Um, so i think that the big things that we provide are you know First of all, the the data model around collecting and aggregating and reasoning about the changes in your code over time is actually one that, if you sort of, you know, I'll leave it to an exercise the, of the reader or to the reader, so to speak, to like, if you were going to design a code climate from scratch, what do you think would go into that? And it's actually, there are a lot of very interesting problems come up, especially when you consider designing an architecture that can do that for 10,000 customers, not just 10 or 100 or 1,000 customers. So um, We provide reasonable thresholds. We provide algorithms that um, show that we have thought very deeply about Ruby as a programming language and Rails as a framework and JavaScript as a programming language to the respect that we try to provide. Um, feedback that will match a programmer's intuition about complexity and code quality, um, which is a, something that I actually like to talk about because the, one of the original uh, one of the original papers about cyclomatic complexity is sort of based on this idea, uh, where the author of the paper um, wanted to provide an algorithm that would produce results that matched. a, a programmer's intuitive sense of something that was complex, right? And that's an interesting thing to think about because it's not what you think always, right? Like a very, very long, a very long file isn't necessarily more complex than a very, very short one, right? So you sort of have to perform analysis on these abstractions that are a few layers deeper than the actual code that people see. So... There are a lot of hidden and interesting questions, uh, in there, but, you know, we, um, you know, and as I've been studying a lot of and working on a lot of business development stuff too, you know, part of what makes people like us is that, you know, we care about them. Um, we try really hard to provide them with good content, good content to read on a regular basis, good support when they need it. We try to constantly make the tool better. And we're involved in the communities that uh, we try to provide a service for, and, and we think that that's one of the we think that that's one of the biggest values that we add.
0: So, what is your philosophy on on, on that topic about um, the open source projects that you guys have have built off of? You know, albeit um, added things to and changed. Is it uh, is it your goal to to make the the public open version of those libraries that you built off of better? Is that a someday thing? Is that a now thing? I know nothing about Oh
1: yeah. I mean we've contributed we've contributed patches back to most of the libraries that we use. Uh, Some of them are some of them have been more changed or less changed. I mean we also provide the tool for free for anyone that wants to use us for open source projects, right? So we feel like that is a really good step in the right direction of sort of paying back that debt to the open source uh, community that has given us so much. Um, so that's how a lot of people learn about the tool and that's how we get a lot of feedback about the tool and that's a service that we always intend to keep and a model that we intend to copy as we expand into other languages. Um, so, you know, there aren't there isn't a specific agenda. I mean... We're a, we're a tiny company. Uh, we're focused on a lot of things right now. Um, I, I wouldn't say that contributing back to those tools is like the, our top priority, but you know it's definitely something that we think about. And as we change our architecture and try to make it. Work better with a wider variety of languages. The means by which we're tethered to those specific open source libraries might might change kind of radically too. So we're open to all kinds of uh, options there.
0: Well, I'm, I'm happy you remembered to to mention that um, you guys provide the service for free to open source projects because neither of us had mentioned it before. And yeah, whoops. It, <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a really great answer in that I think for for the open source community, having Code Climate for free beats—I uh, would, f- it, it, well, it beats for me at least as an open source contributor having better versions of the sort of lower level libraries. Like it's more impactful to me.
1: Um, yeah, that's that's probably true. I mean, um, well, thank you. That's cool. I mean, I think that a lot of the open source libraries that you use Code Climate do get a lot out of it, and. Um, I think in that way we've sort of contributed back to open source uh, because, you know, we do give you insight into um, what that project looks like. You know, it's just that visibility thing. Like I like to harp on that visibility as the biggest value that we add because when you just like gem install foo, you don't have any real idea what's in that gem, right? I mean, you can, you'll can you download it, open it up, hopefully you'll read through the code, especially if you're gonna include a gem in a commercial customer-facing project. You should always have some idea of the code of the gems that you're using. Um, but being able to like just click on that badge in GitHub and just poke around and maybe see that people are referring back to it when they're making changes to it really gives people a sense of confidence in uh, knowing sort of more information about the quality of the code that they're using from third parties.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about this sense of confidence, and I'll use the the sort of much hated buzzword of gamification that Code Climate kind of creates for code quality with the the GPA and A through D. And I don't know if it's my favorite or least favorite feature of Code Climate. depends on the depends on the day, but. You know, what's, what's your point of view about that? I don't,
1: I don't like to think about it as gamified actually. Um, I know that it's not my, necessarily my place to make that distinction, but we, we definitely don't sell it that way. Um, we, we're very careful when we're, uh, reaching out to customers and trying to help them figure out the best way to use Code Climate in their day-to-day jobs or personal lives, uh we don't make it about chasing an A. We're very careful to make sure that people understand that the tool is supposed to be an information radiator that, again, gives them visibility into their code base. And sometimes, you know, but, but again, it's a robot, right? And it's an, it's an algorithm based robot. It doesn't, it's not machine. It's not a machine learning neural net Bayesian, you know, uh, Terminator two thing or anything. Right. I mean, it's, it's, relatively straightforward, threshold-based algorithm that tells you good information, um, but it's not the be-all, end-all, right? Like, you have to know more than Code Climate does about your tool, about your code, um, or else you won't be able to get the most out of it, right? And, and the stuff that Code Climate can't tell you, uh, like, any, like Code Climate just can't tell you anything about your domain. Right, I mean, it can expose interesting uh things about your domain, or it can maybe help you change your understanding of your domain a little bit by telling you like in a, in a sort of simple way where like you don't think that you know you touch this model a lot, but code climate's telling you that it is, and you don't think this is complex, but it actually is, and whatever like it, it's not going to tell you um that you have a, you know, that your user model is a God model and that you should decompose it into these various other models, right? It's like, it's not going to do all of that for you. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, yeah. So, so I don't think that I don't, we don't suggest that people just chase an A for the sake of chasing an A. Sorry. The point that I was trying to make there is that if you know that you have a file in your code base that is, for example, the interface to some external SOAP service, right? And that has, like, a bunch of, like, XML code in it or a bunch of, like, here doc, like, whatever. You're, you have to do a bunch of messy stuff to conform to some external interface specification. And that file is a D or an F, and, and you're never going to change it, Right. Like, we're not going to bug you about that DRF all the time. We're not just going to keep emailing you over and over again about that file that hasn't changed, right? We Mm -hmm. tell you about things that are changing. And what is changing and what's important to your business, like what is going to be changing coming up, is what you should be paying attention to when you use the tool, right? So it is you know, we do assign a numerical value and there is that grades thing that people tend to get. Not, I wouldn't say they tend to get, but sometimes people get worked up about the grades because they want to chase a B or an A and there's this like idea that a B isn't good enough. But the way that we think about it and the way that we try to communicate it to our customers is that an A and a B, just leave it alone, right? Um, Mm -hmm. A C is potentially a warning sign and you should introduce no new d's or f's into your code base right like that that's kind of a good way to think about it and um with other features that we provide like recently we um rolled out a feature that allows you to analyze uh branches So previously you could only analyze the master branch, uh, in your repo. Now we listen to events like for example, from GitHub, when you open a pull request and when you open a pull request for a branch, we will eagerly analyze the code on that branch. And then once we've analyzed the code on that branch, what we can provide you with is a diff between the code on that branch and the master branch. And from that, you can extrapolate what impact on the quality and security of your code those changes will have, right so we we much prefer that people excuse me <coughs> pay attention to what's coming up and what's changing than to what's static and has a bad grade attached to it.
0: so does that make sense? Yeah it does. I've found as a user the the topic to be. Surprising, because I, I don't really consider myself to be like a completionist. I'm not a game player. I don't really worry about that sort of thing. But it's super powerful to have that to have that feedback. And like, even if I don't think I'm all that inclined to chase a higher grade, I just opened up my project while you were talking, and the one that I was looking at today, I have a 3.77, and it annoys me a little bit. And I was thinking about like, it shouldn't. You know,
1: That's a really really good GPA, especially if it's a big. <laughs> especially if it's a big uh, project, you know? And, and one thing that I tell people is that, like, if you have a project and you're adding code to it over time, then not getting worse in your GPA is actually doing very well.
0: <laughs> right. Right? right.
1: Because every Because co- everything that you introduce is, you know, every time you add code, you add complexity, right? Mm-hmm. And so you... You know, like there's that old saying, like, no no code is faster than no code, right? Which right. means that, like, you know, only the absence of code is going to be as fast as possible. You know, the more code you add, then the more you have to deal with. So if you're increasing the volume or the mass of your code and your grade is not going down, then you should feel really good about it because it means you're paying attention to things as you change them.
0: So not that this, uh, not that this interview is the... Uh... Sean comes up with unsolicited ideas Uh, podcast. One thing that I was uh, thinking about this morning that would be really nice is for a class that's not changing. Like I've got a class member that's not changing and it's getting a complexity score that like I understand why it's calculating it that way. But I'd like to say, really, it's okay, Ignore it. It'd be super nice to be able to say until this thing changes, ignore it.
1: Yeah, right. Um, we've thought about that. We, you know, the three of us have varying opinions about it. Um, on the one hand, you, on the one hand, I, I do understand the convenience of that. Um, but on the other hand, we, we might be concerned that that actually sort of promotes that perfectionist behavior that we're really, we try to just be really more realistic, right? Like for the most part, the important value that Code Climate adds to companies is not getting them from a 3.77 to a 4.0, right? The people people who will get a lot of value out of our application are those that have complicated code bases to begin with, right? Um, I mean, maybe, or they have a 3.77 and they just don't want it to get worse, right? right? Because they're just really happy with how maintainable it is. And the idea is that that visibility, it gives you a direct... Uh, connection to the question of how maintainable your code is.
0: Right. So tell me about the most uh, underused feature from your point of view in Code Climate.
1: Um, well, that's a good question. I think that one thing that people don't always know about is that you can hook Code Climate up to notify you in your chat room. Um, like if you have HipChat or Campfire, and soon we'll be integrating with other third party services. One of the best values that we can provide is giving you up to the minute information about changes. So, um, if you have a team of developers and you uh, enter your Campfire API key into Code Climate, what we'll do is for a subset of changes that happen, uh, we'll notify the camp, we'll notify you by sending messages to that chat room. So, if during the day someone you know, checks in code that adds security vulnerabilities or significantly changes test coverage or changes, uh, by a certain threshold, a class from one grade to another, or introduces Ds or Fs, uh, will notify you in that, in that campfire chat. And one thing that I really love about that feature is that it, it is a conversation starter, right? It's a, it, you know that kind of chat announcement in a developer chat room in the middle of the day is is pretty sure to start uh, some pretty interesting conversation around around those changes and and you know um, enhancing and promoting conversation is is one of the things that we really would like to we that 's how we want people to think about our tool it is something that gives you visibility and that lets people really know certain things, uh, where before they were really hard to gauge.
0: Right. What about the most overachieving feature? The thing that was, uh, you never thought was going to be the center, you know, centerpiece of your value proposition to folks that you hear about.
1: Um, that probably would go to security actually. Um, security is an awesome feature. People love it. And, um, you know, it's a lot of the, there are a lot of, without giving away too much, like there's a lot of people that, you know, that's what they come to us for.
0: Right. I like the way that, for what it's worth, the way that the uh, security feedback is structured where it's sort of the the table list of the types of security um, uh, weaknesses that it could find. I kind of learned a lot just reading through that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And actually, I think we're okay at that. I think we could get better at that kind of education where you know, on the quality side of things and on the security side of things, we could be providing people with, um, information, like, you know, just linking them to articles that can help make suggestions for them about how they can fix particular problems that we surface. But yeah, that table, I mean, it gives you pause, right? It's like, wow, there, are, there really is, there really are some things to be concerned about. Some of those, uh, potential security vulnerabilities are more benign than others, but, um, yeah, I think reading through that table, reading through the what are these, reading through the breakman site really gives you a lot of insight into you know, um some of the uh some of the potential attack vectors that um the framework has.
0: It reminds me of the feeling that I that I get when I read a uh, self-diagnosis website. <laughs> I, like, plug in your symptoms and and uh like at first you're thinking you want to you want to you're going to make yourself feel better by figuring out what's wrong and then, like, temporarily you feel worse because there are, like, so many possibilities of these terrible things you didn't know existed and then ultimately you feel better when you realize it's just whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, on the uh, on the code side, I, I totally get what you mean by providing helpful links to things that are related to the various smells and issues. I think, uh, I think as a user that would be nice sometimes. Um, right. You know, when it says there's you know, the, the complexity is too high because there are too many branches and conditionals outside of method def- or declarations, and you're like, oh, okay, it'd be, it'd be cool if in line there was something more there. Right,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's...
0: So uh, talk to us about w- w- when you go, w- when you expanded from Ruby only to JavaScript, and you mentioned PHP on the horizon and some others, has that been a, a huge change Um uh, not a huge change. What, what's that been like?
1: Um, specifically transitioning from Ruby to Ruby and JavaScript.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I'd say yeah. I'd imagine that the first edition. Yeah, released,
1: that's but, a good question. Uh, um, I think that we are. There's a lot of different levels to that, right? I mean, we don't have the penetration into the JavaScript community that we do in the Ruby community, so we're sort of we're sort of easing into supporting other languages. Um, Certainly, certainly, uh, adding more languages is an opportunity for us to consider some of the architectural choices that we made and implementation choices that were made early on. And, you know, when it was meant to just support Ruby, um, certain things could be done in a certain way. Um, and then... Um, yeah, so that's that's one side of it. I mean, it 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 has had a very it has had a big impact, but not I think as big a big of an impact as it as it will have. And sort of what we're trying to focus on in the beginning part of the year is how to really successfully integrate ourselves into the communities that we want to provide service for. So um, it was we learned a lot about JavaScript implementing the JavaScript support, but I think the big the big wave of impact that language expansion will have on code climate is actually yet to come.
0: What about the JavaScript within a rails project? Is that, is that, that's not supported?
1: Not yet. So what we'd like to do is provide you the ability to analyze multiple languages within a repo, just sort of, that would just work. So for anyone that's not familiar with the tool and, and of course, uh, You know, I I suggest that everyone try it out. You can get two free weeks uh, on us. And, you know, if you email me uh, and tell me that you heard me on this podcast, you know, I can hook you up with a little bit more trial time if you need it. Um, But that was a little shameless plug. But um, the – yeah, I think – I think that. Um, sorry, I actually I actually lost track of my thought for a oh, second there. Uh, uh,
0: JavaScript within
1: a Rails. Program. Oh yeah, right. So we like what we really right. So for anyone that's not familiar with it, the way that it works now is that you have to add the repo each time for the different languages that you want to analyze. And one of the reasons why we pursued JavaScript second was because, you know, every Ruby and Rails project has some JavaScript in it. So the next step or one of the next steps is to make it so that you'll get a unified quality and security uh, view of your repo sort of in one place. And and we really like the ability to do that. So that, you know, because, you know, when people are writing features in JavaScript-heavy Rails applications in a, in a day-to-day, like in a product shop or at a consultancy, like you're not just writing Ruby or JavaScript, right? The point is that your commits will have changes to both uh, languages in them so that our quality and security analysis should be able to tell you about that's those changes at once and, and sort of how they interact with each other because that's sort of interesting as well.
0: Yeah, so on that point, so what about how should we think about CSS and Sass and call it HTML and HAML. Are those? Yeah, those are those are, are, those those are in, lintable. In- in- bounds or out of
1: bounds? No, they're not out of bounds. Uh, I think I think CSS linting uh, that comes up pretty regularly. Uh, that's a cool idea. I mean, the future of Code Climate. It would be awesome if you could just drop your web app in. It tells you the languages that are that uh, your repo is composed of. It breaks uh, it breaks the quality and security analysis down by those languages. It gives you lots of actionable information about all of the all of the code. Uh, you know, that goes into making a web application, which in 2014, you can have a lot of different languages in there, right? I mean, you know, I don't think we'll go so far as, like, analyzing your, like, Bash scripts or your deploy scripts or whatever, but I think certainly being able to do PHP and JavaScript at the same time and Ruby and JavaScript at the same time um, would be a really uh, big benefit.
0: right. So what about this? So that's sort of like the language dimension of analyzing a project. What about the... The contributor dimension is that is that a thing in Code Climate where I can like look at the axis of who actually wrote the code and how they're contributing you know in whatever direction and whatever magnitude to the project's uh, code quality or is that is that not a dimension that the app looks at?
1: Correct. Uh, currently, it does not, but uh, we do not tell you anything really about who did what. Um, that sort of the picture of that sort of changes a little bit actually um, with the pull request stuff because often you know, one author will open a pull request and so you'll be able to tell like these are the changes proposed by a certain individual. But for the most part, we don't give you contributor level information, but it is actually something that we're thinking about. And, and we've talked about it a bunch. And, and people often, you know, people suggest funny things like the wall of shame or whatever. You know, we don't, we don't want to be a tool... We don't ever want to be a tool um, that can be used in in a punitive capacity. And we we sort of already dangerously skirt close to that with, like, saying, like, you made this an F, you know? Like, we really don't want people to have that used against them. Like, we're a tool for developers, and so we don't, you know, we we want to keep that. We want to keep things positive and keep things about information radiation and, and actionable data about how things change. And we want to make it less about heroism or, and villainy and, and that kind of stuff. So it would be interesting to think about a way that you could provide information about contributors without having it become something where you just kind of want to cut across, you know, the pers- uh, single individual's changes to a repo to sort of make some qualitative assessment of their work. I don't, I don't think that that would be uh, a fair
0: thing to do. So there's some old... Um management um i don't know management rule of some sort which is i'm, I'm going to try to paraphrase which is like uh uh private what is it private criticism public praise you know with the, but it's wrapped in some cute expression right i wonder if that's i wonder if in that is the answer where you know the the you get praised in public for your for your um the way you improved a, a a project, but maybe the the more cutting criticism is just to you directly from Code Climate. Oh, that's an
1: interesting idea. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, often mm-hmm. often managers will approach us and say they want reports, you know, and we're a little uh-huh. we're a little bit loath to provide those. Just just you know, mostly because it's not this is really not the point of the tool, right? Like that mm-hmm. that really that doesn't give you visibility into the code. That just sort of. Mm, at best, provide some false equivalencies, and we don't really want to be in that business
0: right so speaking of uh how to give feedback uh one last question about code climate, which is for users of code climate, when they have uh ideas or um uh things they've noticed that you know that that maybe are are bugs or or whatever, what's the best way to give feedback to you guys about? about whatever it is that a user wants to communicate to you.
1: yeah um, Noah Brian and I are all active on Twitter and we all you know we look at the code climate Twitter account you can always tweet at us you can always send us an email at hello at codeclimate.com. Um, you can look us up on github and find our email address we're very uh, we're very open to hearing from anybody you know if you've used the tool and you have uh, some feedback about it, we'd love to hear from you. So please don't hesitate to send us an email or drop us a drop us an at mention on Twitter and you know we'll hit you back.
0: Cool. Well why don't you take a, a minute if you would and just give the final plug. You know, we've talked a ton about code climate. I want to make sure that people know how to take advantage of it in the uh you know today for their projects.
1: Yeah so you know I, I what I suggest is that um, anyone who's interested in the tool should just you know, go to the site, sign up, um, add, your private, add your private repo or add your favorite open source project that you've been working on. And um, I think an, an interesting thing to do is you know, look at the information that Code Climate presents you. When you load it into the application for the first time, it's going to give you a breakdown of the quality and complexity and the security if you're writing a Rails application of your, of your project. Look at that, think about the domain, right? If you're if you're writing a library, think about your abstractions, if you're writing an application, think about your domain models, right? Look at the information that code climate gives you the first time, and then and then close the laptop. And don't look at it for you know, a week, right? Uh, and then you know, pay attention to the information that code climate tells you as you're committing, like read the emails that it sends you, hook it up to your chat room. Pay attention to it. Get used to using it as an information radiator, and then get into a rhythm of you know reporting to it and reading the information that it gives you, and making changes that will best suit your business or your open source project. Right? What we really want is to is for Code Climate to be a tool to make programming easier, better, more fun, to help you write more maintainable code, so that you don't get woken up in the middle of the night. Uh, from pager duty because your application blew up, but you know, you're know you able to successfully communicate with your customers or your stakeholders or whatever because you have a tool that gives you extra information that isn't obvious on the surface when you're just reading
0: the code. Awesome. Well, how can people get in touch with you personally?
1: Uh, anyone can send me an email at uh, mrb at um, I'm mrb underscore bk on Twitter. Um, you know, I talk a lot on there, so be prepared. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always open. And, you know, like I said, please tweet at the, at code climate Twitter account. Um, and don't hesitate to get in touch if you have any questions or you want to discuss programming language pedagogy or programming language theory or, 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 uh, you know, find, find beer and wine or whatever it is. I'm, I'm always open to chat.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mike. You took tons of time today and I appreciate it. Uh, Quite a bit. All right, awesome.
1: Thanks so much, Sean.
0: All right, for the Ruby on Rails podcast, this was Sean Devine. I'm Barely Known on Twitter.